welcome to the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I'm Crispin Mayfield, a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, a writer and neighbor. And together we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This is season six, and we're calling it Shame Core Records. Hey y'all, this is Crispin, and if you know me, you know I'm pretty into attachment science. As a therapist, it's a field that I rely on a lot. Basically, it's the study of what makes for healthy parent-child relationships and really any significant relationship. It's a field that's been really helpful for me to understand what's healthy about what I've learned about relationship with God and what's been unhealthy about the parts of the faith that I grew up with. The other day, someone asked me about how I got to thinking about faith and attachment science, And there are lots of answers to that question. But one of the answers was Christian hardcore. A few years ago, I just started my career as a therapist, been in licensed practice for about a year, and it was a beautiful spring day in Portland. I was driving into work, and out of nowhere, I remember this band I loved when I was in high school. The band was called Nodes of Ranvier, not the most well-known Christian hardcore band, But they were well-known enough back then that you could find their album in Best Buy, back when we bought albums at Best Buy. I hadn't listened to them in probably a decade, but I really loved them as a teenager. They were dark and dramatic. Like they were so raw that at this one point, the vocalist pulls away from the microphone and screams into the room. Which as a teenager, I thought was the coolest thing ever. It just felt so authentic to me. And I always made this joke that I liked Nodes of Ranvier because they were the only band in the whole world that sang my name in a song. There's one point where he screams, Crispin, Crispin, over and over. So actually, he's screaming blood scabs because, you know, it's hardcore music. Anyway... I put this album on and listened to this song called A Life Wasted Sleeping, and it stopped me in my tracks. He screams, I don't deserve to rest, I'm here to serve. As a therapist with this attachment lens, I'm thinking, wow, this is actually really unhealthy. Later in the song, he says, I must serve my God till my knuckles crack and bleed and give all the glory to you. Basically, he's saying that his whole worth and value depends on what he can do for God. It's the exact opposite of Sabbath. And from an attachment lens, this is a really unhealthy relationship dynamic. But as a teenager growing up in evangelicalism, I didn't even bat an eye at those lines. I'm not blaming the band. They're just saying what the whole community was saying. It was the water we were swimming in. It was so raw and authentic and uncensored, which actually meant that I could look back and start to understand what the actual emotional experience of being evangelical was like. Like your whole worth was based in giving glory to God. So I started to dig into some of the other music from that time, and I quickly found out that the very fact that it was so emotional and transparent meant that it told me everything I needed to know about the emotional impact of growing up in the evangelical church. Looking at this music I loved, it started to come together that this in no way resembled a healthy relationship with God. But I didn't know that when I was a teenager. Chris 
This is like your baby. You're doing a whole season on Christian Hardcore called Shame War Records. And I just want to know why. Why Christian Hardcore music? Because. Oh, because. That's great. <laughs> Let's go. So okay, basic... can I ask you a question? Yeah. Okay, so did you grow up listening to Christian Hardcore music? Like when I was like 14 and 15, 16, 17. And what did it mean to you at the time? It was it was like really a way of like being spiritual and also expressing a lot of emotions. It really meant a lot to me in this very spiritual way. It was like sort of like the worship music I listened to because it was all these things about relationship with God. But um, it was much more raw than other worship music and other Christian music. And I would say that was like for better and for worse, which is why I want to talk about it, because really... You could say whatever you wanted, as long as you didn't say anything bad, you could say these like really dramatic things, right? About like hating yourself or about how worried you were about going to hell. And it was kind of like nobody batted an eye. One, because people probably couldn't tell what you were saying. And for two, it's just like, well, kids are like dramatic. And for three, these actually were things that were okay in evangelicalism. People just didn't say them out loud. Right. So it's probably the third third part you as a therapist really want to focus on i'm just really curious because i think when we think about teenagers we do think about people who want to rebel a little bit who want to mm -hmm. do all that and you're saying christian music is different and, and christian hardcore in particular it was actually a way to explore your spirituality and to continue to be seen as like a really spiritual person while also doing some of this other stuff and right. i think that's really important so you already mentioned like maybe people didn't even know what they were singing about because they're like screaming and right, all yeah. that uh were lyrics like really important to you as a kid yes so i had my little bedroom it was like a really a small bedroom with like the white plaster walls and what i did was i wrote down all these lyrics to christian hardcore songs and then i s took them to the bathtub with a lighter and i singed the edges of them <laughs> And then I taped them to my walls. That was the aesthetic of my... So you were, like, creating ancient artifacts? I You're guess, trying to? I think it was supposed to look really edgy, you know, with, like, the flint, the sides burned. And your parents just let you do that? Uh, yeah, they didn't even say anything. Like so, you, I, so you were, like, handwriting out the lyrics? Yes, the hand, lyrics in did. cursive. Wow, lost art. So the lyrics were really important to you? Yes, probably, like, the most important. Okay, so more important than the music. In a way, yeah. Like, the music was really powerful, but the lyrics were, I would say, more important in a way. And, like, were you a part of the scene? Because, like, people who were into Tooth and Nail and into, like, Christian alternative music, like, being a part of the scene was important. Although we know, like, not everybody was able to, like, go to shows and stuff. Right. Yeah. And I think that's like something that is there definitely was a scene. There was like this, you know, alternative scene, hardcore, metalcore, et cetera. But I think there were a lot of people like me. I was a missionary kid. You know, it was during the days of Napster where you could get music and there's like a lot of accessibility. And you would just spend the day like looking on the Tooth and Nail website and listening to every band. But it wasn't like I could go to concerts. So it really meant a lot to you. Yeah. And it really spoke to you feeling like an outsider. And... Hardcore and punk was about being different. And what we're going to talk about this season is how actually a lot of that was like you're trying to get yourself to act right and be right. And like a lot of anger at yourself for not being able to be as obedient to God as you wanted. 
uh, not being able to do the right things. Like, why do I keep on like failing over and over and over again? Which really resonated we, with me as an evangelical kid. And I think whether or not you listen to this music resonates with a lot of people. We've talked about how that does not resonate with you. Nope. <laughs> but I think that idea of like, what is wrong with me? Why can't I get this right? I think was a, a feeling that a lot of people had. That's so fascinating. And I know this season is supposed to be about you. And I think it will be, but I, I think it's really funny to think about me as like a 13 year old preacher's kid, like innocent, chubby cheeked girl, just bopping along at a hardcore show and just be like, okay, this is interesting. Okay. Like, right. mm, I hope people are becoming Christians at this show. Like, that's all I uh-huh, cared about. Right, yeah. Here you are like almost like, a monk from olden times like whipping yourself in the back <laughs> so like, true, right? through the lyrics of these songs yeah. and so i think we want to make space for people listening like maybe you didn't listen to hardcore maybe you grew up adjacent to the christian music scene we all had really different responses and i think it's really important to hone in on people like you and others like you who are very drawn to these uh lyrics that point to shame and point to self-hatred and why that was very normalized right right? yeah exactly yeah if i had discovered this music through going to hardcore shows i never would have known what the lyrics were but i was like the kid in china like writing these down in cursive because they resonated so god bless that little boy i love that crispin and i love this crispin sitting in front of me too so okay i have one last question okay is Christian hardcore, the most reformed musical genre. I think so. Probably. Yes. And they're literally the most Calvinist. Yes. Like total depravity. Mm -hmm. We are born sinful. God cannot stay in the sight of you. Right. Mm -hmm. Without the blood of Jesus covering. Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, a lot of worship songs sort of like, you know, they uh, refer to it. And Christian hardcore is like, this is it. Like, I'm just going to make it really clear. Yeah. So it's hard for me to think like. Christian hardcore, did they just get it more than other people? You know, I'm just trying to say, like, why did pop punk not go there? Yeah, I think a lot of it was the genre. Although listeners are probably like, what about like Reliant K saying like, who I am hates who I've been, you know? So there there are these elements throughout a lot of this music. But Christian hardcore... I think, you know, it's really, it's so funny because it's supposed to be tough, but it's really dramatic. Mm-hmm. That's and, why you love it. Yes, exactly. It's so dramatic. It's like, it's like, you know, on some level, like the, like there's some part of like a theater kid in me that wants to. Carmen raised us to be theater kids. Exactly. Want to get on stage and yep. scream your guts out about yep. how much you love God and how much you hate your sin. Okay. One thing that we've, you've brought up about this. Mostly it is white men, white young men who made this music and enjoyed this music uh-huh. and reminisce about this music. It's a sweaty, smelly white boys club. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so it's important to just point that out. Uh-huh. One thing that one thing about this season is that I'm looking at like what is it about white evangelicalism and what can we learn from those outside of white evangelicalism and from a diversity of voices about these themes. So I'm really excited about that. But I also want to just acknowledge that, yeah, this is the most white centric male centric, like music genre 
possibly ever. Really? That's a bold claim. But I think so. I'm like... Nothing else is coming to mind. I know, exactly, right? I mean, maybe ska, but even like punk, you could have like punk girls, you know? Mm-hmm. Like there is a little bit more of that. And they're just... There was like... I can think of one Christian band called Still Breathing that had a female vocalist and they did like one album and that was basically it. Wow. So let's just put that out on the table. Okay, so this is debated, but Christian hardcore, at least the era that I'm talking about, is different than most other white Christian music. Because in a way, it's not copycat God rock. Most other genres, Christians took it and redeemed it. They sanctified it. But this was different because they were on the front lines of this actually what was a post-hardcore scene. Bands like Under Oath and Norman Jean and Emery were playing on the top stages with bands like Every Time I Die, Kill Switch Engage, and Thrice. Under Oath sold a gold record, which means they sold 500,000 copies, and it wasn't just to the Christian market. But to understand how important Christian hardcore was with all of its flair and anger and sadness and drama, you have to understand contemporary Christian music like Michael W. Smith, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Amy Grant, all that music that we grew up with. So I talked to my friend Leah Payne, who's writing a book on contemporary Christian music. She's a professor at George Fox University and Portland Seminary, a host of the Weird Religion podcast, and we talked to her on this podcast about Frank Peretti a couple of seasons ago. I asked her what she was learning about the emotional atmosphere of evangelicalism as she's digging into music that would play on K-Love or your local Christian radio station. So suffering motifs don't tend to make it into the top 20 too often, unless by the time you get to the bridge or the chorus, kind of like, and Jesus is great. So those motifs don't tend to make it in. And so I interpret that as a kind of regulating. These are okay emotions to feel in this kind of space. You were talking about the interior world of the like chart toppers. I think that um, if you look at contemporary Christian music, you can gain certain like big picture ideas about what evangelicals thought the interior world should be. So like, you should be thinking about this. You shouldn't be thinking about that. So I think of the the music of the top 20 as a whole promotes a very regulated internal world, high boundaries around what you ought to be thinking or feeling, but not a ton of space for like meandering emotionally or, or um, thought wise. I think one example of how the reception of songs promoted that was a song by an artist named Leslie Phillips. And she eventually left CCM and became um, just a singer-songwriter. And her music is amazing. She did the soundtrack to Gilmore Girls. Fun fact, she is an incredible vocalist. Anyway, she wrote this song called The Strength of My Life. And the chorus says, Every day I look to you to be the strength of my life. The chorus made it into certain hymnals. Well, the verse is talking about despair, depression, hopelessness. If you take the chorus out of the verse, you don't actually get that pondering, what does it mean to be at a low point emotionally? So even the songs that did, you know, that might make it into the top, like they were sort of tweaked along the way. It's not like there's, I don't think there's any like evil person out there kind of like, ah, ha, ha, you know, I'm going to take away this moment. I just think it's people's tastes, you know, they just, they just think like, well, I don't, 
I don't want to feel that, you know, like in church, like that seems inappropriate to feel so bad, (laughs) you know, in church. It's like something that we sort of do together. Um, But that song stands out in my mind as like, oh, it's actually really different when you separate those two. If you were to come up with a slogan for CCM. Okay, so what makes that makes me think of is the radio station um, safe for the whole family. I think that that is the brand and also the damnation of CCM, right? Like, I actually think that that slogan, it kind of sums it up for the good and for the ill. Like, it's going to be so inoffensive. And that's not a good thing, necessarily. Like, that's the that's his best. That's the best thing that I could do is like, save for the whole family. Yeah. Why are we reinventing the wheel? (laughs) Yeah. Listening to Leah, I reflected on the freedom I felt listening to this music. Even though in some ways it parroted the beliefs of the community, it was also a really emotionally freeing space for so many of us. I thought of the song by Norma Jean called Memphis Shall Be Laid to Waste. It was about death and Jesus and girls. <laughs> it just had so much energy. It was poetic and dark and still spiritual. And then at the end, Aaron Weiss, the singer of Me Without You, comes in and does this dramatic spoken word. I just loved all of it as a teenager. And if I'm honest, I still do. This song's called Memphis Shall Be Laid to Waste. Enjoy it with your brother or your sister or grandma, whoever's here with you. Our city will be out August 13th. It's called Bless the Martyr or Kiss the Child. This song goes out to everyone below the south of the Mason-Dixon line and up north from it, too. It sounds a little something like this. One, two, three, four. Hey guys, my name is Megan and I'm from Monterey, California. I'm 33. Um, Christian hardcore is like one of the few topics on earth that I can talk about for hours. My gateway into Christian hardcore or metalcore was actually first through the punk and ska scene. Bands like Five and Frenzy, old Reliant K, old stuff, uh, MXPX, The Dingies, um, stuff like that. And then just going to festivals and shows where I was introduced kind of accidentally to harder bands like Norma Jean or Showbread. But I uh, first heard Under Oath when I was 15, talking to some dude over AOL Instant Messenger. Um, and, I, and I just love the song. Um, when the Sun Sleeps, obviously, was the first big hit they had. Um, and uh, I, I just loved it. And my world kind of opened up to more aggressive music. There was just something so wonderful about it. Um, you kind of feel like you found your people. And I listen to tons of secular hardcore as well, then and now. Uh, but there's just something so tangibly powerful about someone yelling or screaming uh, at the top of their lungs words that echo the prayers that you've prayed or um, truths that you're trying to live by or spiritual questions that you're wrestling with, like right along with the members of your favorite band or whatever. And some of those moments have given me more powerful experiences of worship than any kind of congregational setting, even though I know that probably sounds weird or maybe not correct. I don't know. That might be crazy, but there's just this sense of community with people that also get that, who know exactly what you're talking about and aren't afraid of that raw emotion um, as God God made our emotions. You know, there's emotions all over scripture Um, and just bands like that who leave it all out in a song or on the stage, um, but also try to honor God in doing that. 
that whole scene has just still been a kind of ministry um, to so many people, thousands of people, and I'm definitely one of them. Preparing for the season, we asked for voicemails from listeners, and we heard over and over and over again that people love the authentic and raw nature of this music. It made me wonder, what was it about the evangelical experience that when we filmed this emotional, dramatic music, it felt like a breath of fresh air? So I talked to my friend Becky Castle-Miller. These books are terrible. They're terrible. She had just completed a thesis that examined evangelical teachings about emotions. So I have Emotions Can You Trust Them by James Dobson and The Spirit-Controlled Temperament by Tim LaHaye. And these books are so bad, I I actually did throw The Spirit-Controlled Temperament across the room, but I also wanted to do it multiple times with both of them. So I picked up these books a couple of years ago when I was still living in the Netherlands and there was an international Baptist church about half an hour away from where I lived, and we did a, a cooperative vacation Bible school with them, and they were getting rid of a lot of books. And I said, oh, I'm in seminary. I could use some more books. Can I take a look? And I brought home stacks and stacks of books. Some of them, a few of them, were books that I could actually use for reference, but most of them were books that I wanted to pull off the shelf so that no one else <laughs> would read them. I knew I was going to work on my thesis on emotions and discipleship in the church. And so I was grabbing books that looked like they were about personality, emotion, relationships, etc. Mm-hmm. I also removed a few from the library that were against women's ordination and tucked mm-hmm. those on my shelf as well uh, for <laughs> research purposes and to um, take them out of circulation. <laughs> so I found these books to be really useful because I've been trying to trace how we got to such an unhealthy place about emotion in the American church. And I found my answers. What did you find out reading these books? I actually went all the way back to 1952 to the four spiritual laws tracked by Bill Bright. This tract written by the guy who started crew campus crusade for Christ This tract Mm -hmm. has been given out, according to them, 2.5 billion times. And in that very gospel tract, it teaches people not to trust their emotions. It gives the four spiritual laws, and then essentially it's not called the fifth spiritual law, but at the end of the tract, it's basically the fifth spiritual law. It says, in all caps, do not depend on feelings. And there's an illustration of a train, and the engine that pulls the train is called fact, and the caboose is labeled feelings. And on that page, he says, the Bible is our authority, not our feelings. And then he says, Christians don't depend on feelings or emotions. And he contrasts that with putting our faith in God. So trusting God is is pitched as the exact opposite of paying attention to and trusting and listening to our feelings. When I did a small survey while I was doing my thesis research of friends from around the world about what they'd been taught about emotions in the church and what those messages were and how they damaged them, the number one message that people reported learning about their emotions was not to trust them. So 
I did a lot of digging into this Dobson book and this LaHaye book because I know they were so influential. So you've got the Spirit Control Temperament, which was published originally in 1966. And it was Tyndale's first non-Bible book. So the Tyndale offices are actually five minutes from my new house in Wheaton. If I look out the window and there are no leaves on the trees, I can see the big Tyndale office. And they built that building off of money from Tim LaHaye's books. When I did my survey, a friend from Nigeria told me that one of the books that damaged her emotionally in the church was The Spirit Controlled Temperament in Nigeria. And she came away with that same message don't trust my emotions. So this has international influence, and that's a shame for the American church to have exported anti-emotionalism. So this book by Tim LaHaye is supposedly about personality and temperament, but the whole middle section of the book is basically a rant against emotion. He actually calls emotions sins. He flat out says, anger is one of two universal sins of mankind. Anxiety is a form of fear, and he talks about how fear is a sin. So basically, having an anxiety disorder means you're perpetually sinning. Anger grieves the Holy Spirit. Fear quenches the Holy Spirit. Then he just goes off onto this wild track that talking about how emotion is opposed to rationality, and then emotions are sinful. Not only are they sinful, but they're motivated by selfishness. Like anger is motivated by selfishness. Fear is motivated by selfishness. And basically, if you struggle with anxiety and depression— your mind is not controlled by Christ. What a condemning message for people who struggle with mental illness. So he's basically calling these mental illnesses sinful and saying that you don't have Christ if you struggle with these things. And his outworking of this is incredibly destructive. He includes these anecdotes that I think he thought made himself look good, but they make him look terrible. They make him look like a monster. Because there's one example of a Christian woman who came to him, and he doesn't use the word abusive about her husband, but everything he describes about her husband is he seems to be treating her abusively. And he tells her that her reaction is the problem. Her reaction of being angry about being abused is selfishness, and she needed to stop indulging her selfishness and stop letting her anger predominate in her mind because that was just going to make her husband treat her worse. So he sends her back to an abusive relationship. And then he writes this in a book to say, look, look at right. this is a great example. Right. Yeah. Look at me. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And the, the most mind-blowing part of the book for me is a doctor actually came to him who said, you ministers are hurting people's emotional lives. He said, I I did my internship at a mental institution and the overwhelming, this is quoting the doctor, the overwhelming majority of those people had a religious background and were there because of fear induced by guilt complexes. So what this family doctor explains to LaHaye is that, hey, what you're doing is literally putting people in mental hospitals. You're damaging their emotional lives. You have to stop. He was warned. He was warned. And he includes this anecdote in the book about how he disagreed with the doctor. He told the doctor people have guilt complexes because they're guilty. He was warned and he refused to listen. And he includes this in the book. My mind was officially blown with this book. And that's when you wanted to throw it across the room. Yes. And so, and in your thesis, you, you say that 
I think you say that uh, Dobson, in comparison, looks better. Than yes. Lay. He <laughs> so, does. Uh, <laughs> which feels like a weird thing to say. What, where, where does this go next? Jump forward 15 years or so. We're in 1980. James Dobson writes Emotions, Can You Trust Them?, which is kind of a compilation of some of his slightly earlier work. And and right, so after reading LaHaye, you read Dobson and you're like, you know, actually this isn't, it's not as blatantly bad. I actually wrote good in the margins of the Dobson book at least seven times. He, he made some good points. But Dobson really divorces uh, emotion from reason, which is totally a false construct. The Bible doesn't make that distinction. It's actually, it was the Greco-Roman philosophers who made that distinction between the passions and reason. So actually the thinking in the church is more influenced by mm. Greco-Roman philosophy than by a scriptural view of emotions. And that's perpetuated in books like the Stobson book, where he says, quote, emotions must always be accountable to the faculties of reason and will. It's a false dichotomy because what neuroscientists are showing is that emotion and thought are all part of the same process. Yes, we can change our emotions by changing our thinking, but we do not divorce emotion from reason. And in fact, if we take emotion out of our decision-making process, we make terrible decisions. The people who lose the emotion-making parts of their brain make bad decisions. There have been experiments done on that. So we actually don't want people to make unemotional decisions. So that's another subtle thing that Dobson does to be anti-emotion. I mean, his title of his book is Emotions, Can You Trust Them? And the implied answer is no, of course you can't trust your, you can't, you can't trust your emotions. A lot of his emotion teaching is is anti-woman. Like his his anti-emotionalism is tied to being anti-woman. Part of that is because emotions tend to be seen as feminine and therefore lesser because reason is seen as masculine, which is better. So a lot of his examples are the same. He's teaching women to accept mistreatment. Their anger isn't appropriate and they're expressing their expectations for being treated better in relationships is not good. They need to be quiet and just basically accept mistreatment. So many of his examples point that direction. And so Christians need to be doing the opposite of saying, yes, your anger is valid. You should not be treated that way. You don't have to accept that. God doesn't want you to be treated that way. And so many of our emotional problems are not our emotional problems. There are very normal, expected, legitimate emotions that are coming out of being in a terrible situation. Our emotions are telling us the truth. We have every reason to be angry for being mistreated. Given this teaching, what what place do you see uh, anger and sadness having in the evangelical church? They haven't had a place. And there's been an idea that Christians should be positive. So, so that place of sadness and anger, like it exists in Christians, but we don't know what to do with it. It hasn't had a proper place. So we suppress it and ignore it. And we pretend like we're okay. Mm -hmm. We use spiritual platitudes to resuppress things when they start to surface in ourselves or in other people. Phrases like, well, it was God's will. Or remember, the Bible says rejoice in everything. The American church has no place for lament. And yet there's so much scriptural precedent for lament and grief practices. We see Jesus grieving over the death of his personal BFF, Lazarus, and 
and his beloved friends, Martha and Mary, and grieving with them. So we see Jesus understanding lament because he came from a culture that knew how to lament. He came from the culture that wrote the Psalms. He he quotes the Psalms. He knows how to lament, but we've lost that. Mm -hmm. So I think that God gives us a place for anger and sadness in scripture, and we've thrown it out. We ignore our emotions. We pretend they aren't there. We lie about them to ourselves. We lie about them to each other and we just shove them deeper and deeper down until we can't cope anymore. And then we completely fall apart and blow up everywhere. We, we explode with unhealthy expressions of emotion on other people and we destroy ourselves from the inside out with all these emotions that we don't process. Let me ask you this. What about sadness? What's, what's the point of sadness? Sadness is awful to experience. But we have to have it because we live in a broken world. And sadness is our brain's response to seeing something awful and saying, hey, that's bad. That shouldn't have happened. It doesn't feel good while we're feeling it. But I've found that on the other side of getting through an experience of sadness, Mm -hmm. I feel better. Because God created us with a need to grieve losses. And so when we do that, when we've sat with the sadness and let it exist in our body, there's a cleanliness on the other side, almost like being washed off in a shower. Like my tears have washed something in my soul that helps me move toward accepting a loss and finding healing and wholeness on the other side of it. And bypassing it doesn't do us any favors. Dan Siegel, one of the pioneers in interpersonal neurobiology, has talked about how having our emotions mirrored and named helps us calm them down, making them way less overwhelming. I know this music did that for me. That song I played a clip of earlier by Norma Jean. When I was in high school, I would come home, go into my room, put on that album, (laughs) and sleep for a solid hour. Something about the chaos of it all helped calm the chaos inside. Christian hardcore was so important to so many of us. It gave us an outlet for all the swirling emotions inside we felt like we weren't supposed to have. But at the same time, the way that emotions of sadness and anger and shame were expressed and processed still fit this evangelical worldview and actually made them worse in a lot of ways. But we'll get to that soon. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. If you want to hear the full interview with Becky Castamiller about emotions and evangelicalism, you can head over to my other podcast, Attached to the Invisible, where I posted the whole interview. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, where DL is often talking about weird bits of Christian media. Find us on the web as well. Also, we love getting emails from listeners. You can find all the links to those in the description of this episode. You can support the show on Patreon and get monthly extra episodes on evangelical culture for as little as $1.50 a month. We've talked about things like Brio Magazine, Wow 1999, and a lot of other throwbacks to evangelical culture. Deal's book, Myth of the American Dream, is available anywhere you get your books. And lastly, artwork for this season was designed by Zach Bard and theme music by Forrest Johnson. Thanks for listening.